Good morning, it's great to be here, and I'd like to thank those of you who were praying for me during this week, and um, I got some cards and some phone calls and some acknowledgments of prayer. I'm fine, so don't worry about me, but I appreciate your prayers, and I'm looking forward to being able to share God's word this morning with each one of us. So let's pray and commit our time to the Lord together. Our Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your presence here. Thank you for the privilege we have of singing your praises. And as we heard in Sunday school this morning, those of us who were studying in Amos, uh, may everything that we've just expressed be from our hearts. Uh, help none of us ever to be going through the motions. Help our worship to be sincere, directed to you. Help us in every way to acknowledge that you're the great God of this universe and of everything that we do and everything that we say. And uh, we also acknowledge that as Amos and the prophets had messages to give sometimes that weren't the most pleasant, uh, that when we talk about judgment like we're going to now, not pleasant but necessary, and thank you for the privilege of being able to hear what you have to say in every area of our lives. So we thank you for this now. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're looking at the Apostles' Creed, and we're looking at one particular expression as we do week by week. From whence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. And the first thing that we're going to see from here, it says, he shall come. Now, that's not a lot about the second coming of the Lord Jesus, but it's in a creed. And a creed has to be concise. And a creed is something that we all want to rally around. So we can't afford to be really too controversial in some of the expressions that will come. So when it says, he shall come, that's really all that is said in the creed about the second coming of the Lord Jesus. But we do know from the creed we're reminded that Jesus is coming. From whence he is coming, isn't that a great old English word, from whence he's coming? Um, that just means from where is he coming? He's coming from the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And those three words, he shall come. Again, it's not a lot to say about a topic that's referred to 300 times in the New Testament. In fact, one out of every 13 New Testament verses refers to Christ's return. One out of every 10 verses in the epistles. Now, I read that. I didn't count them all. But if you want to count them all later on and, and do a fact check on that, then you're, you're welcome to. One Christian writer has said this by the name of Donald Cole. He said, the words, he shall come, summarize a major Bible doctrine. Christians agree that our Lord clearly predicted his return. And throughout Christendom, you won't find too many arguments about that, that the Lord Jesus said that he would come back. This is why belief in this blessed hope is plainly stated in the Apostles' Creed and all of the later creeds as well. Disagreement centers on details about the coming that are not so plainly stated, such as the time of Christ's return. And you understand that all throughout Christendom, there are arguments about when the Lord Jesus will be coming back. Expressions like pre-tribulation rapture or mid-tribulation rapture or post-tribulation rapture or amillennialism or premillennialism and postmillennialism. All of those things have to do with the timing of when Jesus will be back again. That's not in the creed. It doesn't need to be in the creed. That's for us to figure out ourselves, and we, uh, we appreciate being able to do that. Um, I like the uh, ones who identify themselves as pan-millennialism. 
millennialists. Uh, they say everything will pan out in the end, and so <laughs> it doesn't matter about the timing. There are two aspects of the coming of the Lord Jesus. Uh, two aspects, and one of them we're pretty familiar with, and that would be the rapture. We've heard that expression before. It's described probably most fully in three passages in the New Testament. One of them being John chapter 14, verses 1 to 3. And you remember when Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me. That's the rapture. Take you to be with me so that we can be together basically for all of eternity. There's another passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 51 through 53, and we're not going to look at that passage, but uh, that's the one that says we shall not all sleep, but we will all be changed. You know, you've seen that sign in church nurseries, we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Uh, talking about our glorified bodies, talking about what the Lord Jesus is going to be doing for us and making those changes, and it's going to happen in the moment in the twinkling of an eye. And, and so many of those things come together in these passages. And I do want to look at this passage. This is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Having to do with the fact that the Lord Jesus will be back for us. It's like MacArthur said in World War II when he said of the Philippines and different other places, I will be back. And he came back, but this is more sure than that. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. It's okay to grieve when we've lost a loved one, but we don't have to grieve like others who have no hope, because we do have the hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command or with a loud shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another. We've lost a loved one. What this is saying, we don't have to say goodbye. We say, see you later. And that's the great encouragement. The Lord Jesus is going to bring us all together, all his children. Rapture is a word taken from the Latin translation of the Bible. It comes from the Latin word rapto which simply means to catch away or to snatch away. We're caught up, it tells us in 1 Thessalonians. We're caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. The um, doctrinal statements from the church where I pastored for a number of years are, are ones that I had a hand in drafting, and I really appreciate them. Uh, here's from our doctrinal principle. I'm going to quote it several times. When we talk about the rapture, what we used to say is, I believe in the personal and imminent return of our Lord Jesus Christ to meet the saints in the air and to take them to be with him forever. You can see that's practically a paraphrase of what we just read in 1 Thessalonians. I said there were two aspects, though, of the, the coming of the Lord Jesus. One is the rapture, 
And the other we often refer to as the return. The Lord Jesus is going to come to take the saints to be with him, but he's also coming back with his saints. And once again, I'm quoting from that same doctrinal statement where we repeat, I believe in the personal, visible, and glorious return of Christ to the earth with his saints to reign in righteousness and justice. So two aspects of the coming of the Lord Jesus, the rapture when he comes for the saints to take them to be with him. The second time though, and not everybody believes this, but we believe that seven years later after tribulation, he will come back again. Again, that's timing is something that people need to work out in their own convictions in their own hearts and minds. But after those seven years, we believe, then he comes back with his saints to reign in righteousness and justice, ushering in a period of time often referred to as the millennium in the scriptures. But we're not going to really deal much with the return of the Lord Jesus. In our statement, we understand that he shall come, it says, but he's coming to do something in particular, and that's what we want to look at this morning. He's coming to judge the living and the dead. Now, I like the older translation of the, uh, or the older way of, of saying the Apostles' Creed. It says he'll come to judge the quick and the dead. Uh, because I used to kid myself that I was the quick. Um, but that, it does mean living. And I was kidding myself anyway with regard to that. That's not all he's going to be doing, though. He's not coming back just to judge the living and the dead. And when we're talking about the living and the dead, living could be spiritual or it could be physical, and dead could be the physically dead or, as well as um, the same situation. So what we have before us is the idea that the Lord Jesus is coming back to judge, coming back to judge, but he's doing more than that because he's coming back to reward as well those who are part of the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, coming back to give us a reward. He's also coming back to set up his kingdom, to receive believers into his heavenly presence, to fulfill all the promises of God that he made, and a lot of promises to the Jewish people that have not yet occurred, uh, promises as well to us. There's a lot of things that are happening when Jesus comes back again. But under the microscope today is the idea of Jesus coming back to judge. A lot of people don't view Jesus as the judge. Maybe you don't. Maybe you pictured the fact that God is the one who's sitting on his throne with the gavel. That it is the God of judgment we see in the Old Testament. He is the one who's going to be judging. Some of us have been studying together the book of Revelation, and we see a lot of judgment that is going to be taking place. We usually picture that that judgment's coming at the hands of God. And we view Jesus as the defense attorney, not the judge. And there's a, a, a biblical portrayal of that because he is our advocate. He is the one who intercedes for us. He pleads our case. But don't be misled. The Lord Jesus is coming back to judge. And a lot of people don't want to hear this, but Jesus is coming back also as the executioner. In Sunday school this morning, I alluded to this earlier as I was praying that we learned about Amos, and we learned about the message of the prophets, and sometimes they want to shoot the messenger because the messenger would bring a message of judgment, a lot of judgment that goes on. And God wants us to understand that everything is not rosy all the time, especially for those who are disobedient. So we're thinking about Jesus himself as the judge 
Jesus as the executioner as well. Here's what Stuart Briscoe has written about this, and I think this is very poignant, very, very important for us to understand this. He says, we are not now thinking of the babe of Bethlehem. When people think of Jesus, a lot of times that's where they go. Uh, they go to Christmas and they go to the babe of Bethlehem. Neither are we thinking of the gentle Savior, meek and mild. Neither are we thinking of the suffering servant on the cross. We're not thinking about that one who's nailed to the cross and people are spitting on him and people are, are stabbing him with spears and doing all sorts of things to him and there he is nailed on the cross and he can't do anything about it. We're thinking now of the great judge before whom heaven and earth will flee and into whose hands God has committed all judgment. Did you realize that? That God himself committed the judgment to Jesus. He handed over the judgment to him. It is Jesus who is going to be judging the living as well as the dead. Several verses just to bear that out. One of them is in Acts chapter 10, verses 39 through 43. Now, you'll find in the bulletin there is a reference, usually goes along with the, the message, and it would have if I had given the right reference. Um, but if you're ever having a week like I had this week, when they tell you don't make any decisions while you're on this medicine and don't, I hit the, uh, the wrong number. And so the verse that you have in the bulletin has nothing to do with the message today. <laughs> but it should have been here. And it wasn't Rachel's fault, it was totally my fault. I, I even sent it in writing incorrectly. But if you look at these verses, very interesting, Acts 10, 39 to 43. And it's interesting that we identify the pronoun here, to whom does the he refer? I think we'll see very quickly, it can only refer to one person in the universe. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. Well, that limits it right away to a very, very few people. And now it's uniquely only one. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear and to all the people, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. In Acts chapter 17, verse 31, it says, because he, that he is God, because God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. And you say, well, I thought you said God is not the one. Well, keep reading. God is going to do this, it says, by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. It wasn't just any man. It was the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He's the one who's going to be judging the living and the dead. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, when the Apostle Paul said to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. And then it goes on to say, preach the word in season 
out of season. But again, we see, and, and there are many other references. I'm not going to turn to all of them. I do want us to turn to one lengthy passage, and I'm going to read this. I won't put this on the screen. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. We're going to see a picture again of the Lord Jesus, not in the manger. We're going to see a picture of the Lord Jesus as the executioner. We're going to see the Lord Jesus as the one who will not trifle with our sins or the sins of the people of this world. Here's what it says in 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 7. And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among those who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Well, what about those who still feel that the Lord Jesus is too loving to judge the world? Have you ever heard anybody say this? That Jesus is too loving a God to punish anyone, especially with sending someone to hell. Jesus can't possibly send anybody to hell if he's the loving God that we see. My answer to that? People are not sent to hell. People choose to go. And God does everything in his power through the Lord Jesus to make salvation available to everyone. People all over the world, everyone sees God, whether it be in the heavens declaring the glory of God or wherever it is, and when they respond to the light, whatever that light is they're given, God always gives more and more and more, more so that people only are going to be in hell who reject what God has given and reject what Jesus has done on the cross. Now, I'd like to ask all of you if you will do this. You're used to reading on the screen a lot, and, and I think that's really good because we can cover a whole lot more scripture. But I'd like for you to look in some type of a device, but if you have your Bible handy or the Bible in front of you, to Deuteronomy chapter 28. Deuteronomy chapter 28. This is something that needs to be seen to be fully grasped, I believe. What an interesting passage Deuteronomy chapter 28 is. It's one about blessings and one about cursings. And I want us to be sure to understand before I read or, or refer to this, God is loving. There's no denial of that, but he's also just and he's also fair and he's true to his word, and he's given us clear warnings. Those who reject him are not without warning. The consequences for them, for, for disobeying God, for rejecting God, are so dramatic, and God has basically set up a situation where he says, if you obey me, which incidentally is the very best thing we can do, we live the best life of that, but if you obey me, then I am going to give you some of the greatest things you could ever imagine. But if you disobey me and reject me and want to go your own way, I will give you the worst possible imagined things that you can ever think of. It's a huge gulf between the two. So that why would anybody 
ever say to God, I don't want all these great things. I don't want heaven. I don't want to live eternally with you. I don't want all that. You can have that. I prefer to have the most miserable situation available. That's what Deuteronomy chapter 28 is telling us about. And I want you to glance at this. First thing that you may have noticed is that in Deuteronomy chapter 28, there are 68 verses. Am I going to read all 68 of those verses? Tony said I had, how long did you say? An hour and a half. An hour and a half. I'm not going to read all those verses. That's why I want you to glance with me at it. Chapter, chapter 28, verse 1. Here's the premise of the chapter. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments, then I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Now, notice what it says, beginning with verse 3. Blessed shall you be in the city, blessed shall you be in the field, and then it continues on. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, the fruit of the ground, the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds, and the young of your flock, and then it just goes blessing after blessing after blessing. It's about as many blessings as you can fit into 14 verses. And then you come to verse 15 and glance at verse 15. Interesting about verse 15, the same theme continues in reverse, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. So instead of being blessed in the field and blessed in the womb and blessed in all of the crops, blessed everywhere, now it's going to be cursed everywhere. But now instead of it going on for 14 verses, it goes on for 54 verses of cursing. Can you imagine that? We talk about positive and negative reinforcement. We've got 14 verses of positive reinforcement saying, do it God's way. Look how great it is. And then we've got all of these other verses saying, here's what happens if you don't. What person in his right mind would say, well then, I think I'm going to disobey God and not do it his way. God is a merciful, loving God and yet he tells us there is going to be judgment. Take some time, if you will, to look through Deuteronomy 28 on another occasion. We won't do it now. But see that God is very serious about what he set forth. God is so loving that he's made a way for people not to go to hell. And he doesn't send anybody there. People choose to go there. Here's the... Third doctrinal principle from my former church I'd like to share with you. We believe that God judged sin at the cross of his son. This is a loving God. He judged sin at the cross of his son, Jesus Christ. For all believers, once for all time, and that he has delegated the judgment of all mankind to the risen, glorified Christ. We believe that among the various judgments mentioned in Scripture are the judgment seat of Christ as to examine believers' works for the rewards and the great white throne judgment to sentence all who have not yet received, who have not received Christ to the lake of fire forever. You see, what God has done, he's given to us the choice of something far better than the curses of that which is worse. Matthew 16, 27. 
For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay. Interesting, repay is translated reward or judge, and it means both. That's going to happen, each person according to what he has done. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 27 and 28. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. The Lord Jesus is coming back again. Lord Jesus is coming back a second time. He doesn't have to deal with sin. He dealt with that on the cross. All of our sins as believers in Christ were taken care of then. We've been forgiven past, present, future of our sins. The Lord Jesus took care of all of that. So when he comes back, it's not all bad news. There's a lot of good news for those who are believers in Christ. I want to share some of the judgments, some of the judgments that uh, we can either look forward to or look back on and see the fact that God's very serious about what he said. So some of these judgments, it's plural, not just one. Here's what one writer said. He said, the erroneous idea that there is to be one great general judgment which is to take place at the end of the world when all mankind shall stand before the great white throne, that's to be guarded against. The judgments of the Bible differ as to time, place, subjects, and results, but there are a lot of them, a whole lot of judgments. I'm going to go through very quickly some of these judgments. Some of them are past tense. They've already occurred. We talked about the judgment at the cross being one of them. Our sins were judged. They were buried. And we as Christians are now freed from the guilt and the penalty of sin. The Lord Jesus accepted the guilt, accepted the punishment for us. None of us will ever be judged for our sins since we've been judged already in Christ. And when Jesus said, it is finished, he meant it. And he meant it with regard to our sins. Romans 8, 1, hang on to this if you ever have any doubts. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We don't have to worry about paying for our sins. That payment has already taken place. There are a great variety of other judgments that took place in the past. Think about the Old Testament. Think about people and nations Think about the flood, the Tower of Babel, the nations of Israel and Judah who were judged by their captivity. Think in terms of Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament and back to the Old Testament, Balaam and Uzzah and Absalom and Shimei and Joab and Goliath. And you may not know all of those names and you may not know the stories, but you understand there was a lot of judgment that took place in the past. There are also present day judgments, present tense ones. They go on in our lives every day. You realize that God is judging us all the time by way of discipline. He loves us. He's like a father who disciplines his children. And uh, at the same time, we're supposed to be judging ourselves so we don't have to come under the discipline of the Lord. Here's what it says in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 31 and 32. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. A loving father tells us, keep an eye on yourselves, because if you don't keep an eye on yourselves, I might have to draw you back into line. 
I might have to punish you. I might have to discipline you. I might have to bring something that you don't like. But what we're looking at really today is because Jesus' return is in view, what's going to happen future tense with regard to judgment. One of those future tense judgments is often referred to as the Bema Seat judgment. It's a judgment of believers' works. It's for rewards that involves the believers. It is not for consequences, it's for rewards. Why is it called the Bema Seat? A beam is a raised place mounted by steps. It was used of the official seat of a judge back when this was written. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, it says of believers, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now what that's saying of believers this is talking about reward, not punishment. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is rewards. We can tell that in the context. At that time, it will be seen whether a person has been, what he's built on in his life, the foundation of his salvation, he builds on that. But he can build things which are referred to in 1 Corinthians 3.12 as wood, hay, and straw. Things that aren't worth a whole lot of money unless you're a farmer. But what it's saying here, when you compare that with gold and silver and precious stones, we want to build solidly on the foundation of our salvation. And if we've built with those inferior materials, you really don't want to build with wood and hay and straw. But if we build with those materials, it says that person's works will be burnt up and he will be saved as through fire. He will still be saved, but by the skin of his teeth. He will not be rewarded, but he'll still be saved. If he's built with the superior materials, he'll receive a reward, it tells us in verse 14 of 1 Corinthians 3. Scripture lists several crowns or trophies that await those who built with good materials, those who will receive a special reward. But this first judgment of a future tense judgment that I mentioned, the believer's works, the Bema seat, that's something for believers, but it's for rewards. Some will be rewarded more than others, but it is not for condemnation. Other future tense judgments, and I'm just going to mention these. Satan and his angels certainly are going to be judged. Book of Revelation tells us graphically what's going to be going on there. Also, Babylon the Great in the book of Revelation is going to be judged. Those countries that persecuted Israel will be judged. The Antichrist, the false prophet, all of these things are going to be judged in the future. But there's one other big one that I want to share with us. One other big judgment, and that has to do with the unsaved dead. That's known as the great white throne or the final judgment. And that's in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. And I'm going to ask you to listen carefully. I don't have these on the screen. But this is the final judgment of those who reject the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not pleasant, but it's so true. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Who do you think that was? Great white throne of judgment. It's Jesus. Remember, again, I, I didn't quote this earlier, but John 5, 22, it says, the Father judges no one, but he has given all judgment to the Son. 
So that's the Lord Jesus. I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The great white throne judgment that none of us ever want to appear before and no one ever has to who receives Christ as Savior. Now that's a lot of gloom and doom. Let me close with something positive. Three, three scriptures, first of all, in 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. When he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself as he is pure. When he appears, he's not just going to judge the wicked. He's also going to reward those who are his own children. And part of that reward is that we're going to be like him. We're going to see him as he is. And part of our lives right now, as we're looking forward to that, should be purifying. This whole idea that Jesus is coming back. I know my grandmother used to say, well, you don't want to be doing that particular thing. What if Jesus were to come back and find you doing that? That's very scriptural. Um, purifying, that, that thought purifies our lives. Titus chapter 2, verse 13, we're told that we're waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So it's not all gloom and doom, it's only gloom and doom if you're on the wrong side. 1 Thessalonians 4.18, we read this earlier, therefore, after that passage dealing with the rapture of the church, encourage one another with these words. Richard DeHaan put it in perspective. He said, Jesus Christ is the inescapable one. We must either receive him in this life as our loving Savior or stand before him in the life to come as our eternal judge. He says there's a story that he read about a doctor who made it his chief concern in matters of religion to degrade the character and dignity of Christ. He viewed the Savior with so much contempt that he always spoke of him in a demeaning way by calling him the carpenter's son. Eventually, the physician became terminally ill. During the weeks before his death, he became very agitated. He remarked to the person attending him, I'm a dying man, and what affects me most of all is that I must be judged by this carpenter's son. That doctor faced a terrible future that awaits all who reject Christ. Yet even in his last conscious moments, if he had trusted Jesus as Savior, he could have found peace and received eternal salvation. How have you been treating the Lord Jesus Christ? Remember the carpenter's son is the son of God. Trust him today if you haven't. You'll receive the blessing of salvation not the sentence of condemnation. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you.
that your word has more than children's stories, as good as they are and as edifying as they are, more than the scene of the Lord Jesus in the manger, but the sobering reality of judgment, the sobering reality that we want to be sure to do things your way, not our way. So my prayer is, in particular is for any who may not know the Lord Jesus who are here, that they won't leave here without talking to Pastor Tony or myself or somebody they know knows the Lord Jesus the way that has been described here today. So thank you for that, and thank you for the blessings of your word in Jesus' name. Amen.